Tap podcast tony cicchini here from beautiful i don't know McHenry county illinois whatever i miss chicago um although it is kind of pretty out here once again we're on uh i'm on storm alert power failure lookout just like last week we've been getting terrible storms and my power went out earlier uh yeah so it's good to be here we have of course joe cardinal who everybody tunes in for mark witkowski and we have a special guest a great martial artist that I know, but we'll leave that up to Joe to do all the introductions. But I just wanted to say that, boy, last week, you know, we talked about um, Joey Francesco passing away. Of course, this week's big news was the Queen of England. And I was getting text messages on that signal thing, signal app, whatever, from Paul Dodds. You guys know Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they're, they were in shock in, in England over there and taking it uh, – quite seriously obviously so uh and on that note I, I i need to let you guys know my students and those who have been part of my distance tri c thing in the past some of you may know johnny rice my old old friend johnny uh i got some bad news this morning about quarter after four uh in the morning the hospital called and i couldn't it was quarter after four i couldn't quite hear well I don't know exactly what hospital it was, but he had a stroke and uh, he's got to get his gallbladder removed, but he also has a mass, uh, some sort of growth on his brain. So Johnny will be, uh, let's see, he'll be 75 this year, I believe, 75 or 76 in November. And of course he's, you know, He's been ailing for a long time, but many of you know him and have met him when you came came out to train with me. So you know, let's let's pull for the guy. He's got a lot of spunk, and uh, him and I have had a lot of interesting endeavors through the years. So um, yeah, not a good thing to you know when your phone when you get calls or or things at that hour, you you know it's like unless it's the wrong number, it's. You know, you never get, I don't know of anybody who got a phone call at four in the morning to say, guess what? You just won $200 million on the lottery. No. Anyway, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Joe Cardinal and Martin, and then we can introduce our very special guest. But Joe, how you been? The world is not the same when you're not part of it. I know, right? The birds stop singing and. uh... (laughs) Yeah. But no, it's been a good week. Got some workouts in, uh, feeling some aches and pains from that, but that's good. So I've had kind of the summer off with some traveling. And so trying to just get back into the swing of things, getting some regular workout at uh, Bender's gym. Got a workout in this morning with our, our friend Blaine. He runs a wrestling uh, 
uh, class, so I can plug that. Uh, obviously, he's a very high-level wrestler, and it's, so it's great a great resource at Jason's gym, a good friend of ours. Um, so that was good. Starting starting the week off good on a Sunday, getting a workout in. How about oh, you, Martin? Hello. I will for sure. Martin, how's it going? Yeah, I managed to get a workout in with Tony this morning, and uh, you know I'm also happy to. Uh, report that um, what we've talked about with Tony is that basically everybody that's done some heavy lifting has some kind of a rotator cuff injury. Maybe it's not like a real severe one, but I certainly have been complaining. And ever since we started to focus a little bit on upper body and doing push-ups with proper form, getting them elevated, working on my upper body actually makes the rotator cuff problems that I have much better. I've actually benched this week and haven't felt any pain at all. So it's kind of counterintuitive because we've been focusing on that body part or on that area of the body, but it's actually been getting better through that focus. And of course, you know, Tony's been keeping a close eye on how I do it, not just how much I'm cranking out. So uh, today's workout was also very good, and I don't feel any, you know, pains afterwards. And I, I think that uh, I'm on a good road to uh, recovery from, from rotator cuff problems. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Tony, that workout's hard or your workouts are hard. The hardest part for Martin is is to stop cheating. He's always looking for to cheat when he does these exercises. You remind me of Kevin. If there's a way to cheat, Martin will find it. <laughs> but, yeah, no. That's true. It's, it's right. I yell at him for that. But form, it's all about doing, like, form, 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 perfect technique. Uh, you know, and, yeah, he's coming along. So it's all good. So, Joe? Why don't you introduce our guest today? Because he's from out of town now. Yes, super excited to have our our friend Paul Sharp join us. I've been hounding him for months to get on this show. And uh, finally, the stars have aligned. We've been able to get on. I think I met Paul um, back before COVID, actually. We did a seminar at his school, SBG, which at that time was in Elgin, Illinois, um, and we went up there and did a, you know, a kind of an intro uh, workshop and it was really cool and cool guys. And I began to kind of, after meeting him, follow him online and it was just kind of, uh, you know, Paul's very prolific. If you people don't know Paul, if you haven't been following him online, he's very out there, very verbose, gives a lot of good information on a lot of subjects and is very positive. Um, I think, yeah, just very encouraging. So I just, I've been a big fan from afar since, since that workshop, um, learned a lot about him. So I'll probably, he'll probably be worried where am I getting this information from about, I know more about Paul than he probably realizes, but um, really cool, interesting guy, got a really diverse background and has achieved a lot. So very excited to welcome Paul. Hello. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. No problem. The honor is ours. And I want to get something out of the way. Now, this is just like my vague memory of a post of yours years and years ago. Um, but I saw you sitting behind a drum kit. Was that, are you a, were you a drummer or was that just a, a pose? I did, yeah, I, I, I did some drumming for a little while. Um, I played in the kind of like the nineties uh, before my, a little bit after my oldest son was born, but prior to my oldest son being born, I played in a lot of bands. I started playing when I was probably 15 I had to get like the little wristband so that you can play in the bar and that means that you can't get served if you try to sneak up to the bar and also you have to stay kind of in the back which in most bars is usually the equipment van out in the back because there's nowhere for you to hang out without being around alcohol and I'm sure now it's even more stringent but back then things are a little looser but yeah I started playing in uh, 
little bars and clubs and stuff when I was 15. I played up until I was almost 30. So, Well, Tony's a little bit of a drummer himself. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Drums and accordion. Yeah, we'll have to talk about this one day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, it's, it's drums are the great, great instrument, the best, but they're so impractical, you know, you with the noise and, you know, the sound, it's, yeah. it's tough. Neighbors don't it's appreciate tough. it. No, I don't. I didn't care when I was a kid growing up. And now I look back and I'm like, yeah, my neighbors really put up with a lot of shit, man, because I used to really bang the hell out of them. But, you know, when I moved to Chicago, I was a jobbing. I started I was a jobbing musician. And, you know, I couldn't I lived in an apartment and stuff. I, I couldn't practice. So, uh, I mean, you, you, you practice on, you know, pillows and, you know, drum pads, but even the pads, yeah. you can't, the, the sound travels. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah I, had I had to a, do some makeshift stuff. I, I had a practice pad kit when I lived in an apartment building and my neighbor thought I was a dancer. <laughs> yeah. We were out at the, you know, those little mailboxes in the apartments and we we're out there one time and uh, my neighbor's like, so are you a tap dancer? Well, I hear I hear you practicing all the time. I was <laughs> like, well, kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of crossover between, you know, old school crossover with old school tap dancers and drumming. And, you know, yeah. like the old jazz drummers were kind of would play off of the tap dance stuff. So it was pretty cool. But yeah, I thought that was funny. It's like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, if people forget about instruments, it's unless you're playing like the keyboards or guitar or something where you can literally amp up to put headphones on and play silently um most i mean a lot of instruments you cannot jam you can't practice sufficiently in an apartment um yeah you know drums accordion horn you know you really can't you can't play any of that shit uh yeah <laughs> it sucks you know right yeah. so yeah for sure for sure well, i used to hate gigging because uh at the time back then i had a pickup truck so i'd be well you gotta know what this is like you're coming home after the gig, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, whatever. And you got your, in my case, I had the drums out. You know, it's a red flag. You were a police officer. We'll get to that later. You know, it's a red flag. Oh, this guy was probably gigging, drinking. So, yeah. You know, you always had to worry about not getting shit-faced and, you know, getting stopped on the way home. Yeah. Um, you know, and then having to unpack. By the time I got home, sometimes it'll be four in the morning, and now I got to haul three trips of you know with my kit up. Oh man, yeah. I don't miss that at all. I, I was always jealous of the guitar players and bass players and stuff because they just had, especially you know, they'd build like their uh, pedal board so they have everything just in in one board in one place. They had their amp, or even you know, when things got better, sound systems got better, they just basically run straight into the system if they were, if it was like a studio gig or whatever. So they just have their guitar and they have their pedal board. That's it. That's all they, so they have two things. The one trip they're in and out, you know, I was always jealous. Yep. Like, man, I should have played a easier to transport instrument. You know? <laughs> I know. You know, I, I was dating for a while. This, this girl, this chick singer, she was really fantastic. Um, she played, she sang for, uh, there was a big orchestra in Chicago, Stanley Paul Orchestra. And uh, wait, Stanley Paul, that's not the guy from Kiss, right? Paul Stanley. Paul Stanley. Why? This is Stanley Paul, right? Stanley Paul, I think, was the orchestra. But she also sang other stuff. So, I mean, all she had to bring was her microphone. It was like, 
<laughs> you know, not even cable. She's like a harmonica player. I mean, put the shit in your pocket. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, they got, they got right. it made. They got yeah, it made. right. They got it made. <laughs> I, I hate that, you know. Um, but sometimes I got lucky. Like if there was a place out in Moments, Illinois, called Glorydale Resort. And the owner at the time, Ed, they both passed away, Ed and Vera Seeley. And Ed, he's actually was a master's degree chemist. But I guess this resort was in his family. And he took it over and it was a bar, you know. And so every time I would play, I would, he'd let me, he put me up in one of the cottages. So that, you know, on the grounds. And that was great because, you know, I ended up, it was like jam sessions most of the time. And I, I'd play the drums, the whole thing. And then once in a while, Ed and I, we do some drum battle thing going on, but it was cool because I didn't have to bring my, my kit. You know, he had, he had like two or three drum sets. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I miss those days where it was like fun. Yeah, yeah. Music sure. became not fun anymore for me for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can imagine. Well, well, what made you get out of music? Um, basically, I just I, I had a my son was two years old, and then my daughter was on the way, and so I needed to come up with some way to have a more consistent income. You know, the old joke about. You know, what's the difference? What's the difference between a musician and a pizza? You know, a pizza can feed a family of three, you know. And so I was like, yeah, you know, when I was single, I was making good money for a single guy. But then, you know, it's such a hit or miss type business. You can make decent money if you're willing to sacrifice those other things, you know. And at that point, I had a family in on the way. So. I went to a part-time status as a musician. I was just gigging on weekends and uh, here and there. And I went into construction work and trying to become a tradesman and, and provide for my family. So, and also well, that was when uh, sequencing and DJs and all those things became the thing. And so it seemed like almost overnight, the kind of like the wedding party bar mitzvah all those things went to djs and live bands became a thing of the past and so it was really hard to find work in that area too so i went from you know basically my income from music got cut down to by half and then down to like a third so i just kind of saw the writing on the wall and took a took a regular day job you know i can remember as a kid buddy rich was saying he was livid about electronic drums the drum machine. And he, yeah. I, I guess he was like fighting with the musicians union to like outlaw these, like don't allow any, the rest of the, okay. So the rest of the band are, they had to be, you know, uh, feds, you know, you had to be part of the, the, the American Federation of musicians. Don't hire them unless they have a drummer. Don't let them get away with this drum kit. shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they didn't listen to buddy rich and you're right. It went from drum kits to synthesizers. Then DJs and then now the DJs a few years ago, like I don't know, about nine, ten years ago, I ran into a DJ crying on my shoulder. Oh, the fuck? oh, all these karaoke guys. I'm like, I don't want to hear it, asshole. You know, <laughs> uh, you took you yeah. put us out of work. So yeah. now the karaoke, I mean, you're a DJ. It's easy to switch over to karaoke. All you gotta do is yeah. get the CDGs and shit. Right. So you're right. Technology, uh, you know. You'd be surprised. Too. Well, not you, Paul, but other people would be surprised that when you're listening to movies, not all movies, don't get me wrong, but a lot of television soundtracks, this and that, you think you're hearing a band. 
you're not yeah. in a lot of instances. It's a synth. Yeah. yeah, it's a guy with a computer. Yeah, exactly um, right. And, and a bunch of samples. And, and then that opens up that whole, uh, you know, kettle of fish about samples. You know, this like James Brown drummer, you know, Clyde Stubblefield and those guys, most sampled drummers ever and yeah. never got paid for that stuff. You know, every, every, almost every hip hop album you heard for a while had a James Brown drunk, you know, beat, you know, and then yeah. they, they realized, well, if we only take two bars, then we don't have to pay for it. We take four bars, we have to pay for it or whatever it was. I don't remember the exact amount, but there was that lawsuit, you know, that came down. And so it was really interesting just to kind of watch all that play out. It's like technology makes our life easier in a lot of ways, but also in a lot of ways makes things a little rougher on people because it, it makes it easy for people to just take without ever having an investment or putting the effort and the time in to, to develop that skill to do it for themselves. They'll just take it from somebody else. And, you know, it's as simple as just sampling that, you know, the intro to, uh, like rock steady from Aretha Franklin, Bernard Purdy's groove on that is David iconic. Yeah. Iconic groove. And how many people sampled that, put it on a track, never sent him a penny, you know, and then they made plenty off of that. So it's, it was an interesting time and interesting uh, series of events that were going down. And so I kind of had to kind of bas- basically face that moment. Did I lose you guys? No, we're here. All right, something just happened here. My screen clicked out. Oh. Uh, By the way, uh, what you described is now happening with visual art because they have now these AIs that can sample random art and create a brand new work out of it. And the legal question of how allowable is that hasn't been answered yet because it's all kind of like experimental and that's not really commercial. But that day is coming. They're going to have the same lawsuits that were in music or actual visual art. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know they were doing that. That's real interesting. And and yeah, you would think, yeah, you would think with visual arts it'd be even more difficult because you can see it. You know, like with with music, you know, you had that whole thing. There's been multiple lawsuits, right, through all the years. Like Stevie Wonder was sued, Mick Jagger was sued by the um, reggae artists and different artists who have sued people and said, "Hey, man, that." Um, like the, that, that chord progression right there was from my song and it's hard to prove, but when you have something visual, like if I look at it and it's the exact same thing, how can you, how well, can you, thing, if, you if you haven't seen these things they're they're kind of fascinating. I think it's really like, I wouldn't say they're really just cutting and pasting images together where it's clearly that thing, but it's, it's kind of the idea of automation where it's this AI websites. And I can't remember what the term is, Martin, you probably do, but you plug in like, um, I draw me a dinosaur in the style of this artist and it'll come out. So even though it's not that artist is, yeah, my son does it just for fun. He'll, he'll, like you say, like, give me a steampunk version of Darth Vader. Boom. Steampunk Darth Vader shows up. And yeah, yeah, it's crazy. What's, what's coming down. And it, and kind of to your point where, um, and it's really what's become now is how clever and how specific can you give instructions to it? So like you can tweak it a little bit and tell it what you want it to look like or what vibe you want. And it'll keep up coming with different permutations, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so like, I know people are doing that for like album art and things like that, but it is a brave new world where you're like, you know, well, the, martial, the martial arts world is littered with people that steal. I've been a victim of that for years. Well, they'll take 
at times verbatim, let's say my material, verbatim, and yeah. make videos and release it and shit. And one asshole in particular used to brag about it in, in the uh, uh, literature, you know, he learns off of videos and then he shows you blah, blah, blah. This guy's never had a lesson in his life by an authentic teacher. And there's plenty of people like that. They'll just take a move from somebody else uh, or whatever, you know, just te techniques or whatever you want to call it. Never give the proper credit. You can't get away with that in like the written world. You know, that's plagiarism and shit. And, and like you guys, are, like Paul's talking about music sampling. You know, we put our hearts and souls into this. Guys like, you know, Bernard Purdy and other musicians, if this was their career, man. And you're taking bread, not just from them, but from, from their families. Um, yeah. I'll tell you what else used to tick me off besides these martial art guys was these. Now, they're, I'm, I call them garage bands. Now, there are some good garage bands. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But a lot of these people were nine to five jobs and they, they were part-time musicians. Nothing wrong with that. But when you're a full-time musician, like you were Paul and I was for a while, uh, these guys are putting together a band that they'll go up to a, a venue and say, look, we'll just play for the door. You don't have to pay us. Okay. If nobody yeah. shows up, we don't get paid. Right. They, they, yeah. Right. And that sucks yeah. because of course, Oh yeah. Well, good. We'll have you. We'll have entertainment. We don't have to pay for it. Sounds good right. to me. Yeah. And that put a lot of jobbing musicians right out of work, man. Uh, yeah. Martial arts guys did the same shit. They'll basically do seminars for next to nothing or nothing for free. And, you know, put legitimate martial artists out of work, you know, because now what, you know, we can't make a living teaching seminars because some other guy's doing it for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they call the race to the bottom, right? They don't understand mm -hmm. that they're never going to, I've talked to a few of those guys and they feel like they're building their repertoire. They're building their reputation, doing it that way. But they're not because what they're doing is they're setting the expectation for the future down the road, say they do become better known, more skilled, people appreciate what they're putting out there. And now they're like, listen, my rate for a seminar is 2,500 bucks. That guy's going to look at them and go, well, actually, I got this other dude who's an up and comer now who's going to teach the same stuff, but he's going to do it for free like you used to. So I don't need you anymore. And right. they don't understand that now. Well, now we've all reached the bottom and there's nowhere to go. And you've undervalued yourself. You know, all, all of us here, have spent our entire life, you know, like Martin was saying, 20, 1999, you know, that's 22, 23 years devoted to this stuff. You've been doing it forever. You know, yeah. we've all been training for a long time and we've put our heart and soul into this, invested a lot of money. I think it's worth something. I, I really, it, it, you know, there's no other profession out there that's a, that provides life-saving material, life-saving education where, you would expect to go there and not pay for it. You can't even get a basic life-saving Red Cross course for free. You know, like there's, there, you have to pay for it. it, ha, it they're they're going to teach you how to do chest compressions and, you know, <laughs> call 911 and tell somebody to go get an AED. Uh, that's the extent of the class, but you still have to pay for it. And, yeah. and so because somebody invested to get to that point where they can teach you and also, one day it might save you or your kid's life. It's the same with the martial arts. You Correct. one day might use this material to save your save yourself or save someone you love. And I'm supposed to teach you for free. I mean, I'm I'm giving you valuable material. We're all and we've all 
spent quite a bit of time and money investing in it. And, and to, to your point about citing our sources, that's why I think it's important too. If I hear somebody teaching and they never cite their source, or if you ask them a question about who they learned from, and they kind of start to get a little, you know, like I understand there's always politics, right? Like people fall out with their instructors and things like that. But even people that I might not have the best relationship with now, I still give them credit for whatever they showed me. And yeah. that's important. I mean, that's a karma train coming for you, man. I think it's really important that you have to share, you know, what you got, your, where you got your material from and who shared this stuff with you. Also, I guess it comes from being a musician too, because my drum instructors would tell me about Tony Williams and then oh, Tony yeah. Williams led me to uh, Billy Cobham, you know, kind of concurrent. They were kind of at the same time, right? They were kind of the sure. gods at the same time. But those guys, I would read interviews where they would talk about Art Blakey and Max Jones and all those guys and, and all Gene Krupa and all those. So then I, st- and Louis Belson. And so I started wanting to do my own research and create my own expression and so in order to do that, I wanted to find all the sources that influenced the guys who were influencing me. And it's the same in the martial arts. I think if, if somebody tells me, hey, man, I learned this from so-and-so, you know, back in the 70s, I want to find that guy and, and read all I can about him. And a lot of our guys, you know, as you were talking about in the beginning, we're starting to our, the guys that we train with and influence us are getting up there in age. You know, um, my judo coach passed in 2016. He was 80 in his eighties. You know, he had cancer. A lot of those guys that are starting to pass. And so I think it's important to tell the younger guys coming up, Hey, this is where I got this from. This is where I learned it. You know, the way I do it is not a hundred percent the way they did it because obviously we're going to modify things a little but I think you should go check it out for yourself and learn the roots of what I'm showing you, where this came from. And, and so that way they understand better. And I think to the point of like guys doing this stuff for free and undercutting each other and not citing our sources, I think that's really what it comes down to is, is one fear. You know, they're afraid that if I give somebody else credit, then I'm not going to be the expert any longer. And two, you know, if, if I send, refer somebody to the people that formed me and shaped me, well, maybe I'll lose them as a student. And that's just not how it's never happened to me. It's, it's never went that way for me. You know, people have always, if they're your people, they're your people, you know, and they can go train with other people and all they do, all it does when they come back is it makes us stronger. Cause now we have their interpretation of what they learned. That they're going to share with us. And I think it's to the benefit of us all. And I think the guys who are, doing this stuff for free and not citing their sources and not giving credit where credit's due. I think that's detrimental and not to get too woo about it, but I think there's a karma train, you know, yeah, I, hope, I think you're right because, okay. So even before our day, you and I, um, the musicians union was very strong. It was one of the strongest unions in the country. And it, it was great because it ensured that the musicians are going to get paid. Um, a decent wage. There were regulations that, you know, that the, the venue that hired them, you know, had to follow and, uh, you know, no scabs and, you know, 
you some musician, especially these studio sausages um, in New York, Chicago, and and L.A., man, they made lots of money. Okay, yeah. they were unknown, most of them. You know, um, the Wrecking Crew and people like that, and yeah. the group before the Wrecking, the group that actually started the Wrecking Crew in the fifties. And by the way, they're all jazz guys, but and gals, Carol Kay on bass. Um, but the bottom line is they had that union. Well, the martial arts have never, to my knowledge, has ever had some, some kind of union that would ensure that these people that we're referring to, these these scabs, um, don't undercut you. You know, it, it you know, it's just sad. Um, but that's the way martial arts, at least in this country. Has always been, and you know, yeah. martial arts really didn't, I think, start here until like let's basically the fifties officially. Yeah. I think uh, yeah. somewhere around there, don't matter. It hasn't been here that long. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's nothing going on with that. So, I, you know, it, it, you you said earlier about um, you know, you know, learning a CPR or whatever it is, you gotta you gotta pay for this. Yeah. You know, unless you know the person and they're just gonna do you a favor. Yeah. Everything costs money. You know what pisses me off? Like car work, like mechanics, right? Auto mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, the cheapest you're going to find. I mean, if you can find you're, it, you almost can't find anybody for 100 bucks an hour anymore. But it's 140, 160, 180 an hour, okay? Right. And then they're going to bitch about whatever you charge for a private lesson, um, especially when you're at a skill level that's higher than the auto technician okay because there's hundreds of auto technicians in in the general area there's very few people like you and i um not only in the area but really in the whole country so yeah i don't get it on that note i knew a guy uh, tony sorry i'm gonna cut out but i have one uh, comment on uh auto mechanics um before i go and sorry not to derail you, but I quote from Kevin King was a quote from Kevin King was that the best auto mechanic is the guy that will screw the next guy and pass the savings on to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I remember Kevin saying it, but that's true. See you later, Martin. Okay, so back in the 70s, this guy, his name is Don Elia. And Don, uh, uh, he was, I guess, originally from Chicago. Terrific, 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 terrific jazz accordionist, but he was a jazz piano player just amazingly good okay so i think it was in the 70s may have been in the 80s um doesn't really matter but he took lessons with the the greatest of them all oscar peterson on piano oh yeah and yeah and uh well shit martin just left but oscar was from canada um anyway back then an hour lesson with oscar peterson was 150 bucks an hour okay back in the 70s Right. So imagine what that would be now. And Oscar is legit. He's not like a martial arts guy that just hides behind all shit. He played around the world. He's the greatest. Um, so, you, you know, if you're going to learn with somebody who's the best or one of the best and so on, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, and, and just, I, I think people just lose that, you know, lose that concept. Uh, yeah. And and that's a shame because you're not going to, you know, the, the good guys, are going to lose the the interest in, in teaching and um because why go through all the effort when you you're, you're not going to make anything or you're going to make peanuts yeah 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, like now, for example, uh, I've, I used to have a mechanic, well, a technician, or I guess they're above mechanics, but whatever. He lived on a corner of my street. Now, he was fair to me, okay? When I moved here, I was here before he opened up his shop, but he was real fair, um, and, he, and he cut me some slack, you know? He would, wouldn't charge me, like, full amount. He helped me out. He passed away suddenly, younger than me. He just died, like, it's going to be two years ago coming up. Um, so that's different, you know, because he charged whatever he needed to charge to make a living, keep the doors open. Um, but then if he wanted to cut somebody a deal, well, that's between him and the person, Yeah, you know, yeah, and that's sure. his call. Um, but yeah, I just, I just don't understand all the cutthroat, um, under undercutting and you hit the nail on the head, Paul, when you said it's a race to the bottom because it, I've never heard anybody put it that way. And you're exactly right. It, it, you're just bringing the whole team down. You're bringing everybody down. You're devaluing everything yep yeah, race exactly. to the bottom should have been the name for this podcast actually but <laughs> well you know hey and, and you can go conversely too i've seen dimwits that can't tie their shoes charge two three hundred dollars an hour for a private lesson when when they're not even qualified they shouldn't even be teaching anybody anything yeah. um so there is a balance it, it works both ways so by no stretch of the imagination um does it you know only point in one direction but um but those guys that charge an arm and a leg, and then you come to find out that they're not very good, they do a lot of damage too. Because now yeah. the legitimate people, let's say somebody's charging 300 an hour, and you're legit, and, and you're charging like a deuce, you're charging 200 an hour. They're like, man, I can't afford this. I just got ripped off by somebody that charged me 300. And it turned out he wasn't very good. I, I'm just done. I don't want to, I'm going to deal with the guy that's only going to charge me 50. What do I got to lose? So, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Paul, I wanted to kind of, you know, we talked some music and financial stuff, but I want to circle back and just kind of get your story recorded here. I'm very curious. So um, were you were you always athletic growing up? Were you in the martial arts early or did that come later? Just kind of give us your story. Where did, where did things start for you? Yeah, I started I started wrestling. Um I was just talking about this with my brother. He thinks I started early. I thought I started around eight, eight, seven or eight years old. I started wrestling. He thinks it was a little sooner than that. Um, and then I started boxing. My earliest memories are my uh, great uncles and um, uncles, grandfather, all those guys just boxing in the yard, you know, like during family dinners and stuff. Like, you know, not like the, you know, angry brawling kind of boxing, but just kind of just always being fans of boxing and, and just came up around guys boxing. And, and uh, there was always a heavy emphasis placed on being athletic and being in shape and being able to take care of yourself. Um, and so I started at a young age with wrestling and boxing. So I think I, to me, boxing and wrestling are, are martial arts. I mean, yes, they're sports, but we know, um, the folk style and freestyle wrestling that we see came out of catch, you know, it came, or, or at least those two were going concurrently. Right. And, you know, you had the, the tradition of the wrestling, um, every kind of traveling carnival or even, uh, Abraham Lincoln stories of him wrestling. Right. But so there's always been a, 
a way to kind of establish dominance, settle disputes, and nobody ever wanted to tangle with a good grappler, a good wrestler, or a good boxer because they could handle themselves uh, with or without the rules. And so I feel like my earliest martial arts were the wrestling and boxing. Later on in my teen years, I started to train in American Kempo because for some reason I thought I needed a, a martial art like that, you know, and I did that. I also trained judo. I started judo when I was 10 in a uh, national guard, you know, kind of in smaller communities, the national guard is where they have, um, or the Ar- national guard armory is kind of like a convention center too, I guess you would call it yeah. or a town hall type thing, you know? And so they would have judo classes there. So I started judo twice a week when I was around 10. So I've always grown up doing that kind of stuff and just playing baseball, basketball, football, anything, lacrosse, pretty much any sport, I would try to play it. Um, some I did pretty well at, some not so well. And uh, But the, the thing that always held me back from getting to the next level was this academics. I just did not do well with academics. And so I could only go so far with wrestling. Wrestled all through um, high school up into early college. And then um, from there, I was, I was living in Florida at the time. And that's where I discovered jujitsu and Jeet Kune Do and the Filipino martial arts and all that stuff. So I kind of got into all that because there was nowhere to go. What, if you're not going to be on the Olympic circuit as a wrestler and a boxer, if you're not going to be kind of at that level, you really don't have anywhere to go. Um, it's kind of hard to get a job coaching um, at like high school or college without those credentials. And there's really no, um, it's not like it used to be where you had kind of like these strongman gyms, kind of like the thirties and forties and fifties where you had Olympic lifting gyms, um, strength training gyms type places, but there also was always wrestling and boxing there. You know, like if if you look at the tradition of those places, there was always guys who, there was always somebody wrestling and boxing and involved in those places. So you could kind of go there, lift weights, and if you wanted to wrestle, you could wrestle or box or whatever. But you know, by the by the seventies, eighties, nineties, those things weren't really available too much anymore. You had to do like a regular martial art, like a traditional martial art, I guess. So I did some traditional martial arts for a while too trying to kind of find that feeling of being in a wrestling room or being in a boxing gym. And I ended up in a boxing gym in South Florida called Lord's gym, which was a really good boxing gym to be in. There was a lot of really high level boxers there. And from there, I just kind of kept branching out and discovering more elements of what eventually is what I do now, I guess. But um, that's where I found Brazilian jiu-jitsu that's where I found uh, shoot fighting. There was a bunch of shoot fighting guys down there. And so just kind of that's the path, I guess, if that answers the question. Yeah, definitely give some context. And so then when did you, obviously you were a gigging musician. And then when well, Where were you born? Where, where yeah. were you from? Where are you from? Maryland. So oh, I, I, I don't know why I thought you were from Chicago originally or Chicagoland. Yeah, no, I was born in Maryland and I grew up there. Until I was in my twenties, and then went oh. to went down to Miami for a while. So, and then everything kind of 
crashed, the economy crashed, and then that's how I ended up in Chicago or Chicago land rather. Yeah. So ended up up there for the job for to get on the job. So I got hired as a cop, and that's what brought me up to the Midwest. So yeah, that's long- quite different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a shock. I got here right, in all this no uh, March. Got here in March. Got out of the academy in September. Started working. I didn't have any winter coats, anything like that, because I mean. I had hoodies because down in South Florida, you do, you do get cold during the, when it gets down to like 70, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's cold down there. So you put a hoodie on and, you know, and look at the tourists who are out jumping in the ocean. You think they're nuts, you know, like, what are you doing, man? It's freezing out here. But then I got to Chicago land, the Elgin area and whoo, that was a whole different level of cold. So I knew I was in trouble in September when I, said to my training officer, I said, oh, this isn't too bad. I think I could do this. And because he was giving me, you know, teasing me about being cold intolerant. And um, I said, oh, this isn't too bad. I think I can, I think I can do this. He goes, oh, man, you have no idea. He goes, this is nothing. <laughs> yeah. So it was definitely an eye opener. You know, I kind of have an Elgin thing because when I first, the very first day or, yeah, I drove from Cleveland to Chicago, uh, packed up my car with all my belongings at Elden. Well, I didn't even have a road map. I just, I'm heading west. I'll find it. Chicago's a pretty big town. I think I'll find it. Because <laughs> um, I had done that in 83. I had left Cleveland. I drove straight down to Dallas. I had my best friend from high school lived in Richardson, Texas. I said, to hell with it. I don't need a road map. I'll find <laughs> Dallas. Well, anyway, getting to Chicago. So I get all right, I'm in Chicago. I'm driving. I'm on I-90. And I'm like, well, all right, I'm here. Now, should I get off on this road? All right, no, I'll go a little further. Well, I didn't know the city. So lo and behold, you know, I, I, I'm no longer in Chicago. Now I'm passing Schaumburg. I'm like, well, I better get off on the next thing. So the next town, basically, I think is like Barrington. I'm like, man, this doesn't look like there's anything here. What the hell? I got to keep going and turn around. Well, I'm getting tired now. So the next exit was route that I decided to get off was 31. And oh. I hung a left. Yeah, that's Elgin, basically. It's West Dundee and Elgin. Yeah. And there was a there was a hotel. It's no longer a hotel. It's like Justin College now or something. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm like, well, that was a hotel. So I'm like, you know what? I can't drive any longer, man. I don't even know what city I'm in. Okay. Yeah. I know. So I, I pulled in. I'm tired. I'm like, look, I need a room. Uh, am I in Chicago? And they're, they're like, no. Do you know where you're at? I'm like, no, I'm asking. Where am I? Yeah. So I just spent one night there. First thing in the morning, man, I hightailed it. Well, actually, what I did was I spent two nights there. To, I got my shit out of the car, put it in the motel room so I yeah. could drive to Chicago. The clerk kind of told me where to go. And then um, I ended up not really getting much help. I drove downtown to the, to, uh, the Chicago Tribune. And oh, I went yeah. to the Tribune. Yeah, I went to the Tribune to talk to somebody at the newspaper. I'm like, hey, I need to know where the Italian section is. I need to know where the Polish section is. Yeah. And they're like, well, I, we don't, I don't know. They're like, I don't know. I'm like, how do you not know? I mean, come on, this yeah. is Chicago. Right. So, yeah, so technically my very first night was, was spent in Elgin. 
That's awesome. Yeah, right not far from where your gym ended up being. Yeah, yeah, right down the street from us. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I've always always been fairly athletic, you know, um, up until I had my first knee surgery, I I could dunk a basketball, you know, and um, that kind of stuff. So I've always been able to just kind of get into shape pretty easy and um, uh, Joe lost it. He, no, I'm still here. All right, cool. I don't know what happened there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, a, that's kind of my background in, in the martial arts and athletics and all that stuff. Well, you know, we have a lot of similarities with the boxing and wrestling. Cause I started boxing before wrestling actually. Um, cause my grandfather was a boxer and, um, you know, so I started like you did with your family. I started with my grandfather and then ended up getting an actual coach by the time I was like 10. Cause my grandfather, even though he was a pro fighter, him and I, you know how that goes, you know, you don't, yeah. you know, so yeah. I got, but the, the Miami thing. So actually I was playing a job in Cleveland uh, music and I, on weekends that I didn't play, I would buy a bounce at a bar and I just would do things shoot pool. I, I was getting by, I was actually having fun, but I'm yeah. like, you know, Cleveland is not for me anymore. It's, it's a bad situation. And I seriously did not know I had gotten done playing a gig. It was an earlier job. Okay. Um, it was at a bar, a bar that I normally, that I would routinely play at, but this night, I don't remember why, but they had us start early. Normally we played from like eight 30 to 12 30, because this was a private club and it closed at one bars were open in Cleveland until two 30. This was a club. But this time we got done at like seven o'clock uh, early. So I'm sitting here having a few beers and I'm like, I don't want to be here anymore. And I didn't know what to do, Paul. Should I go to Chicago, which is basically Cleveland, or yeah. should I go to Miami? Oh, yeah. I, no, seriously. I was torn yeah. about this, right? Yeah. So finally, I lit- literally, I've told this story many times. Um, I had a half dollar. And I think it was a half dollar or it was a quarter. It doesn't matter. And I flipped it. Heads Cleveland or heads Chicago, tails Florida. I said, and I'm leaving tomorrow, no matter what. I'm getting the hell out of here. I figured I was going to just check it out. Yeah. Well, it turned out to be Chicago. I came to Chicago. I was here maybe a week, 10 days, and I was staying at a dump friggin' motel in River Grove called the Lighthouse Lodge Motel. I wasn't gone five minutes. I came back. They had broken into my motel room, and I lost everything. My accordion, my drums, my clothes, all my cassette tapes of me growing up, photos, all of it gone. Oh. Yeah, Paul. And I came this close. I was about to say, you know what? Chicago's not for me. I'm going back home. But after I got robbed, I couldn't go back home. A complete loser. Yeah. And I pissed a lot of people off in Chicago because I never said goodbye. I never told anybody goodbye. uh, Because, again, I figured I'm going to come out here for a couple of weeks. That's all. Two weeks in Chicago, two weeks in Miami. See if it's for me. Like I said, I brought all my gear because I figured – I'm going to try to get a playing job, either the drums or the accordion. Uh, and then if if I can land something, I'll, I'll come back. Well, yeah. it sucked. But, yeah, I could have went to Florida, man. I, mean, oh, man. Dad, I might have ran into you down there. Yeah, we, we would have taken it over, man. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> hey, what happened, Joe? What, where, where'd you go? 
Um, well, you know, it was just the most subtle power bump. Like I, I almost thought I was just, I thought I blinked my eyes. Honestly, I didn't even see it, but it was enough. Obviously, you know, this is a, a professional gig we're wearing here. I don't have any kind of like battery backup on any of my internet gear. So that little bloop, that was all it took just a little. So, um, so you, you know, like a Barbara Eden thing, because you do kind of resemble her in a way. You're like the I dream of Janie thing. You can. Oh boy. If I, if I look like Barbara Eden, I would never stop, get away from in front of a mirror. <laughs> she, she has, she has a, a very important role in my formative years. So um, yeah, that show, um, you know, my friend did a lot of damage. My um, friend did work at her house when she lived in Chicago, uncle Vinny, he did some oh, electrical really? work. She said, he said she had a lot of freckles because, um, you know, makeup covers that. But yeah, she was living in downtown Chicago. She married, I don't well, you could probably look this up. She she married a cardiologist or a, a lawyer or some, somehow she married somebody, might even have been a policeman uh, from Chicago. Matter of fact, it, it could have been a cop. Um, Those it, yeah, she married somebody from Chicago and was living here for a while. You know, you got to know, they probably didn't advertise it, but he probably had her put the genie outfit on. That's all I'm saying. At home, I would just once in a while, maybe for his birthday, yeah. actually, put, put the outfit had. on. Yeah, you got to. You got that's to. Just, that's got to be in the contract. <laughs> you know, she's <laughs> like ninety or something. She's still going, man. She's uh, she was a beauty queen. But you know, I came from a, like she was really big in the '60s. I so I came from the next era. So for me, it was the Charlie's Angels crew. Uh, Farrah Fawcett, Jacqueline Smith, Cheryl Ladd, all that. Um, I got to meet Jacqueline Smith. I was bodyguarding, and I was in New York, and I got to meet her. And you did, words can't just, I mean, you can't breathe when you're around her. She was so good looking. She was so beautiful and so nice. That's oh, wow. really cool. That's real cool. Yeah. yeah and she was very, 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 very nice. And, uh, you know, growing up, for all, I guess as a kid, I liked Farrah. And then I kind of outgrew that. And I became, like, nuts about Cheryl Ladd. I mean, I just, to this day, would, you know, I'd go, uh, yes, Cheryl, you want me? I'm there. Um, but, boy, when I saw Jack, Jacqueline Smith, I'm like, there's just no way that, there's no way that Cheryl Ladd, there's no way that anybody's going to top this. Jacqueline yeah. Smith was perfection, man. She was beautiful. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I know this is what all the podcast people want to hear when we've got Paul here, but I'm going to say, make a statement that I think Farah was probably the least attractive of the three of them. As pretty as she was, I like the other two better. Yeah. Well, I think, don't forget Tanya Roberts was smoking hot too. She came on later as well. Shelly Hack was on her, Kate Jackson, but yeah. Uh, you know, everybody's got their own tastes, you know, <laughs> Some I mean, good, some bad, yeah. I, I'm not going to bash any of them. They're all, <laughs> all of them were beautiful. I remember Kate Jackson when she was on the Rookies, and I was really little. Huh. And, I mean, I, I thought she was cute then. But, you know, when she's up against Kate Jackson, uh, Jacqueline Smith and Farrah, you know, I'm sorry. I, I'm not, I can't look at Kate Jackson. I got to look at one of the other two, you know. And then when Cher, when Farrah left, here comes Cheryl Ladd. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, wow. I, I, wow. And mind you, I'm watching these people on a little 12 inch black and white. Yeah. That's the only TV we had. And I still fell in love. 
We definitely grew up in a magical time of TV, that's for sure. I was just watching on YouTube, they had the $1.98 beauty pageant, which was also amazing programming. I don't know if you remember that, but anyway. I don't remember that one. <laughs> um, I do. Uh, that's awesome. I remember that show. Yeah, that was, I can't imagine that. I don't know how that got on the air. If you're ever really bored, look it up on, it's insanity. It's, it, it's really, they were all, they must've just, at that point, everybody involved in production and decision must've just been coked out of their minds and said, yes, green light this project. We're just gonna, <laughs> and it was just a place for, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it's, it's really. Ab, uh, there was uh, no gatekeeper, no gatekeeper on that. Just let it through. Right. Let it through. Do you remember uh-huh. the gong show? They usually yeah. put, they played them back to back a lot of times. Okay. Right? Do you remember J.P. Morgan? Sure. One of the one of the, okay. Years later, here in Chicago, my friend dated J.P. Morgan many many years ago. My friend was a lot older than me. He briefly dated J.P. Morgan. Now did now when she broke up with him, did she ring a gong? <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> yeah. No. It, it's it, and and that same friend. Uh, Bedbug Eddie, he, his cousin or his aunt, his aunt or his cousin, I forget now, is married to Bob Newhart because mm-hmm. Newhart's a Chicagoan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. So he met Bob Newhart many times. I never got to meet Bob Newhart, but that would have been cool to meet him. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. He's awesome. Uh, hey, good. let's get back to Paul. So we got a guest. <laughs> um, oh, so one day, so you, you started in the, your your law enforcement career started here when you came to Elgin and yes. like how old were you how did you get into that kind of later yeah I got into it later so I got into it when I was 30 which was not a bad time to start I feel like it was actually a good time to start because I had a little life experience behind me mm-hmm. and I had been around some stuff and and kind of just saw how the world worked a little bit and it also it gave me a, a leg up when I would uh, go on calls <clears throat> and stuff you're dealing with uh, folks that are older than you, you have a guy who's 20 or 21, 22 years old, fresh out of college, hasn't really experienced much in life. Now he's standing in your living room telling you what to do. It's a little different and comes off a little different than a guy who's 30, 31, 32, who's lived a little and kind of knows a little more about how to talk to people, deal with people. Uh, and I did never assume um, compliance, I guess, is that might not be the right word, but I never just, I just never assumed people were going to just listen to me because I was wearing a uniform. I always felt like I had to bring something else to the equation. I had to find a way to, to build rapport with them. And I think that came just from being in life, just playing music and then working construction. And, um, you know, basically I was a subcontractor. Or, or contractor when I was working construction. And so there was always the kind of that art of the deal. There was always that negotiation constantly, you know, for trying to get an outcome that works for all of us, you know? And I think come, when I got into being a police officer, that kind of carried over. And I think it helped me a lot. So starting later, I've thought about that quite a few times because I also had quite a few people in my family that were police officers and they always were encouraging me to go into it, go into the profession. And I always, I just wanted to play music and, you know, do my thing. And, and so I, although 
I understand why they were pushing me towards it when I was younger. I think it was a better decision to go into it later with a little more life experience, a little more having been through a little bit. You know, there's an old saying, you know, never trust a guy who doesn't walk with a limp. And um, because that's a guy who's never gone through a hard time. And so he's going to be less tolerant. He, you know what I mean? And yeah. so having been through some stuff and, and struggled a little bit, I knew what it was like. And so when I came into being a police officer, I brought those experiences with me. I, I think it really set me up for success. It helped me to avoid a lot of the things that guys that started at the same time as me, they struggled with. You know, it almost, and this is going to sound funny, but I, I almost have that same thought about therapists. As you can probably tell, I've been through a lot of therapy and I've seen a lot. <laughs> well, like when you have a young therapist or you deal with someone who's younger than you, or at least you feel like, oh, they just read this in a book. They haven't felt it. They haven't lived it, you know, yeah. because there's a lot of nuance to life experience that like, this is the right answer on paper, but how does that actually feel to go through it? You know, you don't know what it feels yeah. like, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost true with every, it feels like almost every profession. And that's, that's really kind of insightful. Cause yeah, you think about, gosh, so many, I mean, I don't want to get too into too much politics or, or controversy, but I think we probably all, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I don't think police get enough training to begin with. There's not enough budget, you know, they don't give them enough time yeah. to train and get experience, you know, and considering what they're up against yeah, uh, yeah. and 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 not only that, but yeah, it's like young kids. Well, you think about that with the military too. I mean, it's all these young kids being put in these life or death situations. Um, yeah. You know, things can happen. Things can go sideways and that's scary. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's, so it's interesting. I was going to actually ask, you answered it for me that, so it wasn't, you grew up or you had some cops in the family, but it wasn't something that you ever thought about. Cause a lot of people like when they're kids, like they want to be a fireman or a policeman, they just know, but just yeah. like, kind of came like a, a late decision, which is interesting. Yeah, I I was I I always was just drawn to music and sports and that that side of things. And so I never really focused on the law enforcement side. I mean, I heard the stories and I talked to them and I'd see their cars and all that kind of stuff, but never really something that kind of drew me, you know. And I think you know, like I said, I I think it worked out the way it should have for me because coming <clears throat> into it late, it's like you said, you know. That movie, uh, Goodwill Hunting, there's a scene where Robin Williams is sitting on the park bench with, I think it's Matt Damon. Do you remember that scene? Where I know exactly like, what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, you can tell me what a painting looks like. You can tell me what this looks like or what that's like because you read about it, but you've never done it. So you really don't know. And so I think that that's a lot of it is, you know, I can empathize with the guy who is saying to you, like, hey, man, like, I, I really can't get a ticket right now, you know, or the guy who's like, I had a hundred other things on my mind. I, I really did not mean to do whatever happened. I just, I was just, this is this, this, and this is what's going on. And I could relate to that guy. Cause I've been there, you know, I've been in those situations where you're thinking about, you know, oh man, this, this guy just paid me for this job. I went to the bank to cash the check so I can pay the guys that work for me and the check bounced, you know? So now I've got two guys looking at me who also have to feed their family and I don't have enough in my savings to cover the cost of that job because the last guy hasn't paid me yet for the job before this one. And so I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul 
And here I, and I just blew through a stop sign because I, I was a thousand miles away from my mind. I was thinking about how am I going to talk to the guys that work for me and tell them, listen, I can only give you $200. I'm supposed to give you 600, but as soon as I get back to this homeowner, let them know their check bounce, I'll get this right. You know? And so I've been there. I know what that feels like. It's miserable. And I've also run a stop sign. I've been pulled over and, uh, in right. Parkland, Florida. And the guy wrote me a ticket, you know, and I remember what that felt like. And I remember just thinking, like, how am I going to, how am I going to pay a ticket? I can't pay a ticket right now. I can't, I need to pay my guys, you know, they got kids to feed. And so, yeah, I know. So come, I came into law enforcement from that perspective. I came in and, you know, it, it did get, I did get into some trouble cause I didn't write a lot of tickets, you know, like if, if I need to arrest somebody, I'm going to arrest them, you know, um, kind of towards, there was always kind of this joke about myself and a few other guys. We were the ones that like, in case of emergency, break glass, you know, and bring these guys out and they'll take care of business, but they're not going to write tickets. We can't get them to write tickets and stuff like that. And I always kind of looked at it like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to arrest somebody like, uh, somebody driving drunk or, you know, I stop somebody for some, cause they're driving crazy. And then I find out, you know, they're, they're just being irresponsible or whatever. Then yeah, you know, I'll probably write them at least one of the tickets, but if I stop some working guy, you know, or whatever, and they're just not paying attention, you know, is what happened, you know, or they're just trying to get to work, you know, I'd stop somebody. I'm like, Hey man, you know, officer sharp, Elder police department, the reason I stopped you today is you're going 47 and a 30 you know any legal justification for that today and they look at me and they're like man i'm just late for work and i can't be late i'm trying to keep you know what i mean yeah i was really inclined to be like all right dude slow down a little bit don't get in an accident because you're not going to get to work you know and let them go and that's kind of frowned upon you know but i feel like when you come from a world where you've actually had to work for a living you didn't come straight out of college into the profession it changes how you look at those kind of things, you know, like there's, there's crime and then there's that stuff. And I was never interested in that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I got my first ticket in, I think it was February of this year. First time in like almost 15 years. Speeding. Uh. Yeah. And doing 52 and a 40 and, you know, he pulls me over. I'm like, yeah, you got me. I wasn't paying attention. So, but man, I got to get home. This is the truth. Cause I was taking care of my mother yeah. I had run I with the Alzheimer's. I had run to get her pills. I, I had them in the car. Yeah, I said, "Here, I got her. I, I know you're going to give me a ticket. Let's make this fast." Yeah. You know, he wouldn't cut me any time. He didn't mm. give me. He gave me the ticket. He gave me no break. Okay, right. none. Now, right. conversely, about two years before that, or three years before that, my mom, I had, I had gotten her a used um, car uh, convertible thing. Again, I have to go get her pills. So I take the convertible. It was a nice day. Tops down. I'm driving along. This is before my mom was super bad. So I wasn't in a rush. All of yeah. a sudden, the lights are on. And they pull me over and I put your hands on the steering wheel. I'm like, okay, there's something bullshit. This is bad. Okay. Yeah. Well, my mother reported the car stolen. She didn't know. And oh. even though she, I took it. She didn't five minutes later, she she didn't know. All right. This is how that Alzheimer's works. Yeah. So this cop 
I'm like, hey, man, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, Diane, blah, blah, blah. I'm Tony Cicchini. I'm her son. Her, this is her address. Just look at my driver's license. She's got Alzheimer's. This is a bad scene. He's like, oh, man. The cop was like, oh, shit. He's like, let me follow you home, man. He says, yeah. don't worry about nothing. Now, right. there was a cop that, and I lived in the next town over. So he literally crossed. I probably should, well, I'm not mentioning his name. So, but yeah. he crossed over to make sure everything was okay here. Yeah. At this place. Yeah, for you know, sure. So there's the tale of two differences. It doesn't mean police, like cops, are bad. It means yeah. each individual officer takes it upon them, himself or herself. You got to judge everybody as, take them as they come. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, so, like, like, a lot of those guys are under pressure to make quotas, too, right? Like, you got to, I've heard, like, yeah. they, they want yeah, you, they, so they've got to balance that. Like, they, they even if they want to let you, cut you some slack, like you said, you're getting pressure. You know, you yeah. weren't allowed to have, you're giving, you know, you're, you're making judgment calls, you know, and uh, yeah. you push back on, which is really unfortunate, because, you know, in some ways, building that rapport with the community is is so important. You know, yeah, they're about... Um... Performance standards. So it's not a quota, it's performance standard. There you go. And so the way we got around it, uh, guys who think like me, the way we got around it is say I stop you, I walk up, you know, like you're 12 over, the speed limit. Um, let me check your driver's license, make sure your status is good, you don't have any warrants, anything like that. Make sure you got insurance on the car. And if everything's good, I'm going to write you a warning. I'll be right back, you know, and then I just write them a warning. So no penalty, no fee, nothing, but it documents that I made the stop and it documents that this is what happened. This is the action I took and then just write them a warning and let them go, you know? And then, uh, so then at the end of the month, when you have to turn in your monthly, your, your activity log or whatever, you can say, look, you know, I'm, I made this many stops. I wrote this many warnings. And then what happened was, um, they started questioning your ability to kind of take enforcement action because they're like, well, you're not writing any tickets. I'm like, well, I'm not a tax collector. I'm a, (laughs) you know, I'm a peacekeeper. My job is to be a police officer, keep the peace. And so, uh, yeah. So it it became a, it became a a bit of a, a, of a game to try to stay ahead of how they were going to switch it to make sure, you know, you were writing tickets and doing stuff like that. It's like, like, listen, man, I'm, I'll arrest people that need to be arrested and I'll write warnings to people that need, you know, warnings written to them. But other than that, I'm not here for that. You know, I'm not here to generate revenue. You know, now, how long were you on the, on the job? 22 years. Oh, all right. You made a career out of it. OK. Yeah. 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 So I made a career out of it. Towards the end, they, they began. um I think it's called data-driven policing where they just look at your numbers. Uh, how many arrests have you made? How many tickets have you written? That kind of thing. And that, that basically was how your performance was judged in the end. And so I'm kind of glad I got out because I feel like it's a, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, you know, like what's driving what, what's creating this issue. So you have, you know, the coppers, they're dealing with the, you know, I got to write so many tickets and it's taken away my discretion, taking away my ability to let people go until I find somebody who's got a warrant or something of that nature. 
And so I got to, you know, write all these tickets that I really wouldn't ordinarily write, you know, or even worse, making a rest I wouldn't ordinarily make because they're going to ask me, you know, why haven't I, why haven't I made a certain number of arrests? Yeah. Know? And so it really creates issues in um, New York City. So NYPD had an issue a couple of years ago where their undercovers, their drug enforcement guys, some of them were basically creating cases to fulfill their numbers. So it came back to bite them, you know, and then they found out like, hey, man, these guys are, they're just, you know, they're doing stuff they shouldn't do to try to meet these quotas or else they're going to get in trouble, you know? And so, you know, so then, then that leads to the public's trust is undermined because the public's like, look, you're just putting cases on people because you're worried about your career path rather than what's right and having integrity and ethics and all the things that you're supposed to have. When we, the public, we, the people trust you to be our protectors, trust you to be in this position to, be the face of the law and force the law for us, you know, there's some responsibility that comes with that. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was cool. Once one of my training officers one time said, I think I was talking about this with my wife uh, during our road trip recently, where the most powerful person in the United States, maybe in the world, but the most powerful person in the United States is a police officer. And I remember saying to him, like, what are you talking about? He goes, because nobody is above the law and your first contact with the law where it goes from there is the police officer so if you stop you can stop a guy who's a billionaire and if you choose to write him a ticket then you choose to write him a ticket he doesn't get away with it just because he's a billionaire or if you go to his house and it's a domestic battery it doesn't matter how rich that guy is he's getting arrested you're going to put cuffs on him and take him to jail and so in that moment, you're more powerful than even he is. And so with that, though, you better be conscious of your role because you can change a whole lot of opinions and perspectives for good or for bad based on how you handle that power, and how you handle yourself when you're tr because you're trusted with that power by the public. You know, we the people vote for the laws that we want to enforce, but we also give permission to our peace officers and, and our cops to do what they need to do to enforce these laws. And so that's a lot of responsibility. You basically suspend somebody's, some of our constitutional rights when you throw the handcuffs on somebody and take them to jail. You know, you suspend their ability to freely move. You know, they're, you know they're, it, it becomes, it's a lot of responsibility and I just wish that was stressed a lot more. You know, you know I was that's fortunate. insightful. Yeah, I, I feel like I was fortunate in having family members and, and training officers who talked like that and talked about that kind of stuff and really stressed that to me in the beginning. Um, and it really shaped the way I, I moved forward and how I went about my career. I think it's really important. You know, Mayor Daly, uh, Chicago's mayor, the Richard Daly, former mayor, said uh, similar. Like, I don't know if he used the word powerful or most important role in politics is the mayor. You know, when people are saying, well, you ever think about running for president? No, because the mayor of a city, any city, didn't necessarily mean Chicago, yeah. 
really helps the people of their town much more than the president does. Okay. Yeah. Presidents can't control, you know, individual cities where a mayor or a village president, whatever the case may be, um, has that power, you know, and, and that really made me think, yeah, you know, parking meters, whatever, all the jazz that a mayor, the mayor really affects me because I used to tell people the president of the United States doesn't affect me. I'm still yeah. either going to get the girl. I'm either going to get laid or I'm not going to get laid. It doesn't matter who the president is. It's up yeah. to me. Right. But then when I started thinking about it, it's like, wait a minute, though. But the mayor, he could shut this bar down, okay, yeah. where I go to yeah. meet women or or whatever the place may be that I go to meet a chick. Yeah. The president can't do that. So, yeah, it really got me down that path of, yeah, you know, mayors yeah. are, are like what you're seeing. See, I never even – now, you took it – or your training officer took it to even a deeper level beyond what Mayor Daly said. And he's like, we're, you know, we're even more powerful than that. And you know what? I can't argue with that. I think he's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, you know, it, it really made you think, you know, like, man, I, I need to be careful. Like the decisions I'm making can affect somebody for the next five, six, 10 years. You know, if they, if, if they catch a case and now they're, they're going to expend a whole lot of money to dispute the, the accusations, they're going to, all these other things. So I need to make sure whatever I'm doing is, you know, is righteous. Like it's justified. It is the right thing to do. And it, it's, I think it's just not emphasized enough. I think guys, you know, you really need to think about it. And, and like you're saying, I, I remember there was a whole bunch of, you know, like always with elections and social media, there's so much stuff flying back and forth and yeah. in, in craziness. And, um, I never heard Mayor Daly say that, but I did hear uh, one of our local city council members say, just kind of like we were we were in a coffee shop right in the downtown of Elgin, and he was talking, and he said, you know, it's funny, people will argue online about the president and what the president does, what the president doesn't do, and all these other things, but they'll never pay attention to who their city councilman, their alderman, and their mayor, what they're doing. And those are the people that decide, well, hey, man, you can't have a pit bull because that's a dangerous breed. Exactly right. Ship, right. But they're going to be all bent about what the president's doing. But the people that affect their day to day life directly affecting their day to day life, they don't they don't even vote in those. They don't even know the mayor's name. Like, come on, man. <laughs> you know, like if, if you want to talk about that kind of stuff, then you need to be paying attention to city council, the mayor. Alderman, all those guys who are going to directly affect your everyday life and never more so than when you need, you know, like decisions about firefighters uh, and budgets and things like that. That's going to affect somebody directly. There's no ambulance to respond when you have an emergency because of budget cuts, but you didn't pay attention to the city council voting on that. Well, now you're paying for it, you know, and that same person was probably online somewhere arguing about the president. You know, yeah, not, you know, you know, I, I see that since I moved out here eight years ago. Well, really, the last six years is when everybody's been political out here, it seems. I stray away from that as much as I can. Yeah. But yeah. it's all pointing the finger at someone else. You know, it's always somebody else to blame. It's the governor or it's the uh, president or, you know, no, this is, you know, the governor, for example, doesn't even know the, the town I live in 
he probably never even heard of this yeah. county, right? <laughs> Right. The president certainly hasn't heard of friggin', you know, McHenry or County and shit. Right. So yeah, uh, take take responsibility. You know, it's okay to sometimes wallow. I mean, we all do it. I've done it. Sure. Like, why did this happen to me? Why did he do this to me? You know, on a personal level. But the bottom line is, you got to quit pointing that finger and just say, you know what? Okay, I'm dealing with the issue now. How can I rectify it? Do I train differently, or what? What is it that I have to do to overcome right. this this hardship? So yeah. yeah, I don't I don't like to have people um bring shit on that they don't need to deal with. Uh because we all have to focus and, yeah. and get our life better, you know. So again, on the political vein, if if you if I'm in and I'm coaching you and, and you suck, it isn't because of the president or the governor, you know, it's because of you. You know, <laughs> don't blame the world. Because right. you're no good at what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Now, now Joe doesn't have these problems, okay? I was going to say, I, I felt a little personally attacked there, Tony, but that's okay. <laughs> no, no, Joe. I no, know what no, you're no, saying. Joe. Everybody knows what you're talking about. You don't have to go on. Um, no, there's always one. No, there has to be that that token. Like, what we got to do is get like a dunce cap kind of thing. Uh, what size hat do you wear, by the way, Joe? <laughs> So, Paul, where do you live now? So, I'm in Boise, Idaho. So, I'm out here in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Permanently? Yeah, well, we'll see. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I get the, I mean, it. that's where you're living. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm digging it. Yeah, that's where I'm living. I'm digging it. Uh, kind of, we joke around because I'm 5'11", and there for a while I was weighing almost 300 pounds, and I was powerlifting and strongman and all that stuff, and so, I, and I got big hands and big feet and a big head. And so my friends would joke around that I'm a hobbit and, <laughs> you know, hobbits keep moving West. And so, <laughs> you know, so that was kind of the joke for a while is that I'm a hobbit because I went from Miami to the Chicagoland area. Now I'm in Boise. So I don't know where I'm going to go from here. I guess Alaska. I don't know. Hey, Gotta keep well, have you, have you had a winter out there yet? Yeah, it's not too bad, actually. Really? Okay. We're, we're in the desert. They call it the high desert, so we're in the mountains, and but it's a desert still. So it'll snow, and then it's gone. You know, it's, oh, okay. it's not, yeah, it's not like uh, Colorado or those areas where you just don't feed a snow on you. So it's not too bad. It, it gets a little chilly, but it's not nowhere near like living near the lake, you know. Are you coaching there. out there? Because – for the yeah. people who are watching or listening, Paul's a sensational martial artist. Always take lessons if you have a chance to train with this guy. Don't say no. Uh, I, are you coaching? I yeah, yes, no, I mean, sir. yeah, I appreciate it, man. I am. I'm coaching at the Straight Place Gym in Boise. It's uh, right down on Americana and River. And I coach all the jujitsu stuff there. We've got phenomenal. Um, the owner of the gym was a Pac-10 wrestler. And uh, or Big Ten wrestler rather, and he went to nationals a bunch of times, and he was at the Olympic Village for a while, and so and he's fought MMA a whole bunch. So we we've got phenomenal wrestling, uh, judo. So I I kind of stay out of those lanes, and I just teach the jujitsu stuff at the gym. So I, I coach jujitsu there. I'm coaching there five days a week. Good. Yeah. I wish you all the success. Um... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, since I lost my gym five years ago, it's been, boy, five years, I can't believe it. You know, it's just, 
for me, it's like a punch in the gut with everything that's happened. You know, I I lost the desire and now I'm trying to get it back. Um, You know, the coaching and Joe gave me some news that I may be doing other seminars now in Chicago. I don't think we're ready to announce that because no, not, it's just in a negotiating stage and stuff, but I'd like to get back at it. Um, uh, Before, you know, before we're too physically old to really, give it your best. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, I'm not saying that you can't like my coach was old when I trained with him, but he was still performing strong men stuff and he was still able to go. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we do, you know, you have to have some semblance of it, uh, you know, but I think guys like you and I, we lead by example too, because we still try to stay physically fit. You know, um, we yeah. try to look the part and walk the walk and all of that jazz. And some of the traditional martial arts, you know, there was like a, you were in it. What's that expression like? For every extra degree of black belt they get, they got to put on 20 pounds to get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like a seventh degree black belt is like, you know, 100 pounds overweight. You know, um, you notice that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like there's there's no way, man. You got to lead from the front. I can't. I, I think there's a good saying where you know you can. It's it's okay to be inspirational. It's okay to inspire people, but it's better to be aspirational. It's better to be something that people aspire to be. Or you know, so when yeah. I, when I'm when I'm teaching and coaching and in classes and stuff, or I'm or they see me training, I try to train in such a way and conduct myself in such a way that that they aspire to be better than me that they aspire to be whatever I am but better you know and so I think there's a there's a thing and plus my coach the guy I got my black belt in jiu-jitsu from he told me he told me you can't be a you can't you can't be fat and get a black belt I will not give you a black belt if you're a fat guy and so I don't want to take a chance that's Chris Howder you know he's a legend and uh, I just don't want to take a chance on him ever showing up and going all right listen fat ass you know (laughs) You know, the most fit martial artist I I know personally or I've seen, bar none, is Bill Superfoot Wallace. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen him in about 10 years, but I, he's still the same. But when I saw him, he was still at his fighting weight, um, which that's how, like, Luthez was. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when I knew Lou, he was actually l- a little bit lighter than when he wrestled. Um, oh, Rod Von, my coach, was always about the same size. Um, you know, you give or take five or ten pounds. That's how I always wanted to be. I got that 10-pound window thing. Um, But, yeah, Bill Wallace, uh, man, that guy, and he had hip replacements and, you know, this and that, and he still flexed out, you know, with his kicks and everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, And and a hell of a sense of humor and just, uh, you know, he knows judo, and he was a collegiate wrestler and all that, and he's he's an all-around. I'd like to have him on the podcast, too. He's not only a tough guy, he's he's just a decent guy. Yeah. He knows everybody that there is to, to like to know in the martial arts world. But the thing about aspiration, you hit the nail on the head. And I use Joe Cardinal as an example to my students. Any new student I have. There you go. They're, no, I'm being serious for once. They're like, can we get better than Joe? Because Joe's the, 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 the thing. So yeah. by the time they come for their second lesson, I'm like, congratulations. <laughs> you know, you're already better than him. See, don't you understand how that, that's what, Joe, thank you. 
I'm here to yeah. elevate everybody's spirits. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad I've achieved that. You, you elevate the vibe, man. Bring them up. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. No, no, but you know, Paul, it's like I didn't. It's a shame that you 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 had um, had uh, moved. I didn't know you. I didn't know you moved. Nobody told me. So uh, I was at There's actually. The reason no one tells you where they moved to, Tony. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> but I was at a mechanic in Elgin. And he was looking for a martial arts school. So oh, I'm yeah. like, and I, and I got a hold of Joe. I'm like, cause I didn't have that. I'm, I'm, I'm literally at his place, get my car worked on. I'm like, Joe, give me Paul Sharp's uh, address of the gym and shit. I know it's right around here. Literally yeah. it was like two blocks away, probably from where your gym was. And Paul's oh, wow. like, or Joe's like, Paul don't live here no more. I'm like, oh <laughs> shit, man. Cause this yeah. guy would have been a good student, you know, cause. Oh man. Yeah, because you—he was right down the street from from where you're. Oh, wow. oh, that's. <laughs> yeah, I forgot exactly now where it's where it's at, but it was like not far, you know, um, somewhere off of 25th or up uh, route 25, and yeah, uh, wasn't far. Yeah. But no, no, you're one of the good ones. So people out there, you know, I don't give endorsements freely. I I, I normally do, don't endorse a lot of people because, frankly, most of them just aren't that good. I, I, I'm I'm a hard person to impress. And and Paul's one of the guys that impresses me, and and it goes beyond just his physical skills because it's his interpersonal skills, and I, and I think that's because to me, Paul, and I think you you'll agree that everybody that you train, they bring something to the table that you and I probably don't have. You know, different experiences or different abilities or different lacks or something. Yeah. So yeah. you know, you're able to um, accommodate people as opposed to making clones of you, you want to make everybody better. And that's, I think what it's like. I, I don't like instructors, be it music or be it fighters that want to make you a clone of them. You know, yeah. they got to have their own identity. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that, man. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's sincere. Cause I did not know you were going to be on the show until this week uh, or until like a couple days ago or something like that. I'm like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we'll have to keep in touch. You know, I, I've never been to Idaho. If I ever find my way out there, you know, oh, yeah. that one, I'll, that one, I'll have to take a map. <laughs> I'm not going to drive. You know, I'm not going to risk it. I'll have to. I'll have to yeah, Google that one. Yeah, yeah. At some point at four in the morning, we'll get a call from Tony. He's in Nevada somewhere. Yeah. Hey, well, the that's West. okay. If yeah. I get one of those those ranches that they have with the ticks, that's that's okay. I won't be calling you unless it's for more money. Yeah, you know. exactly. But, yeah, you know, it's so for so many years I couldn't travel, I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. And I was just saying something to somebody today, to Martin, when I was giving him his Zoom lesson. Um, it, you know, when when my mom first went to the nursing home, which is going to be going on, see, June, July, she's been in her going to be four months. Um, first couple, like the first month, month and a half, I wanted to go. I didn't want to be here. Right. But you know, now I don't I don't leave. I'm I'm still back in the house, but there's the difference is I was forced to be here before. Yeah. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be forced to do something. Even if it's something I really, really, really love to do and really want to do, if you're yeah. telling me I gotta do it, then guess what? I'm not gonna do it. Okay. Right. Just for spite. I'm like that. Right. So 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 now now I'm able to travel. Um I just don't, you know, because there's I really don't have any place to go. No, no reason to go anywhere. So, um, 
but hopefully next year come spring, you know, things will get, I'll get righteous because um, things are still up in the air. I mean, I, I don't know where my mom's going. Her health is not well. I, I had a meeting with them the other day and her, she, something's not right. I tried to tell them her, her meds aren't right because they say she eats 75% of her meals. She doesn't eat all of her meals. Yet, she's put on 40 pounds. Oh, wow. This is thyroid issues. She's up to 182 pounds. This is thyroid. Her thyroid meds aren't right. I keep telling them that, and they're like, they're disagreeing with me. What am I going to do? Yeah. So what I want to do is, like, like next year, you know, um, you know, get everything prepared for next year and, and, and come out the gates, you know, running. Because this year, yeah, this year she went into a nursing home in May out of the blue because it just kept getting worse. So this yeah. whole summer I couldn't plan it out. So now I want to start planning for seminars next year and, you know, but I'm not asking to come out to, for a seminar. I'm saying I'd like to come out just to see you. Yeah, no, for sure, man. Anything I could do to help you out, let me know. Yeah. You know, whatever. No, I'd like to come out and see you. I've never been to Idaho, you know. Um, uh, how far is that from North Dakota? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty decent ways. So Okay, we'll- good. Because yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about bench no, warrant, I, words, bench warrant. That's all he wants. To... Well, no, no, no. Because that's once you know the the probably the best pool player in the world is from North Dakota. So I want to make sure I don't run into Shane Van Boning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my luck. I'll have a few highlights in a bar with you, and Shane will walk in. I won't recognize him. I'll be like, want to play? You know, keep me out of North Dakota or yeah. South Dakota. He's one of the Dakotas. I think yeah. he's the North Dakota kid. Yeah. So keep me away from him. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you're safe. Got, yeah, that would ruin business. my trip to run yeah, into that to that guy. But <laughs> no, I'm going to have to tell you, Paul. Keep in touch. We'd like to have you back. As we've been, we're watching the clock on the wall here, so we want you back on the podcast anytime. Cool, man. I'd love it. I'd appreciate it, man. I'll I'll come on anytime you guys want. Right, be great, doing, what are you doing tomorrow? No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, we just scratched the surface because I did want to. Obviously, we're running late, and that was great. I think we talked about a lot of cool things. But I, obviously, you do a lot more. Um, I'd lo- love to pick your brain on firearms. I think you do a lot about firearms training and safety, and I'd love to hear your philosophy behind that and things of that nature. So um, not only that, yeah, like, I'd love to on again. Yeah, and, and, and just your history with strength training. I know you're quite an accomplished power lifter, too. So like I said, we didn't really even – we only barely touched on the surface of those things. But um, – uh, so yeah, hopefully we can have you back in a short time, you know, um, love to talk more and thanks for taking the time uh, here. And again, yeah, look for straight blast Jim and look up um, Paul online. Like I said, he's constantly posting online, a lot of good information, a lot of encouraging stuff. Uh, you won't be disappointed. So um, and let me just plug that. I'm doing a seminar this coming Sunday, the 18th at um, DuPage Krav Maga. And Joe will put the information to get a hold of another police officer, retired Chuck May. So um, our once a month seminars uh, are not at the college anymore in Naperville, at least for now. It's going to be at DuPage um, Krav Maga. So look that up. It'll be 10 a.m. next Sunday, the 18th. Uh, And yep. So anyway, everybody out there, you know, I want to thank you guys for listening and we're going to have Paul Sharp back on, and, and he'll get into more of the uh, 
the firearms and all of the tactical stuff. But, you know, it's good to talk personal stuff because we're all people, too. Like, we all have our hobbies and our foibles. And when I was a kid growing up, I don't know how it was with you, Paul, but I wasn't a martial artist per se, but I would read the magazines. And all these people seemed like almost like priests, you know, like yeah. they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't swear, they don't have women and all. Right. No, we're all just normal people, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. good that people get to see this side of you because I learned stuff about you. Like, I didn't know you were from Maryland. So, yeah. nice. all right, people, then we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for watching. Thank you, Joe and Paul and Martin. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.